So welcome to DDA's Encouraging Abilities podcast. I'm your host again, uh, DDA Communications Manager Evan Kelly. Uh, today, Today's podcast, we are joined by Deborah Steenstra. Now, Ms. Steenstra is a professor at the University of Guelph in Ontario, uh, where she holds the Jaroslawski Chair in Families and Work and is the Director of Live, Live Work Well Research Centre and Professor, professor rather, of Political Science. Now, for many years, she's also been working with the Canadian Research Institute for the Advancement of Women and FemNorthNet, or the Feminist Northern Network, which includes working with a diverse group of women and uh, women who identify as having a disability. With uh, having said all that, she's also the author of the recently published About Canada Disability Rights, the second edition, not, of course, to mention the first edition that was published in 2012. So thank you for taking the time today to talk to us about Canada and the current landscape of disability rights. Thank you, Evan. Um, so just right out, I, when I read all that, what do you think? That seems like an awfully large, <laughs> impressive body of work. Okay, so uh, thanks for that. But really, um, my work in disability comes from a very different place than sort of the academic um, and literature pieces that you're talking about. And um, it comes because I was um, married. My first husband partner was a man named Patrick Kellerman, who lived with multiple sclerosis. And together... We had two children and raised two children, and um, we, uh, I was somebody who worked in women's organizing and thinking and research, and he worked in the disability community um, for Disabled Peoples International in Winnipeg. And as his MS progressed, um, there were more and more barriers, challenges, um, creativity is required to live the life we wanted to live together as a family. And um, I finally got to the point where I thought, how come I'm separating what I think and research about from what I live day to day as a family member with this, you know, of somebody with disabilities. And so we first started working together on some research. And then when he retired as a result of, um, the escalation of him, his MS, I kept going um, in disability rights and research. Um, and it's been a passion for me. And as my body has uh, become or, um, uh, more, uh, as I've lived with more impairment um, and had to adjust myself to living with disabilities, um, you know, it, it's it's very personal. So yes, I do a lot of things, but really, this is deeply personal, as it is for many of us. I know. Yeah, no, that's you know, once I when I started, you know, working at uh, Developmental Disabilities Association here in Vancouver, about I think I've been here for about three years now, is is just how many people in Canada actually identify with a disability. It's, it's somewhere around twenty five percent, I believe, and it's just mm-hmm. that's that's a very large piece of our audience or, or, or just a, a very large piece of the country you know that and that's where obviously rights need to be more clearly defined and understood now about Canada disability rights that was published in 2021 now since the first edition you've seen 
have you seen substantial changes in government policy, supports, or even just some some of the prevailing attitudes in the public? I, I guess in the, in a nutshell, have the past ten years accomplished anything? I, I think, in general, the reason I wanted to write a second edition is because some things had changed, and they were, in my view, substantive changes. Um, so I'm not sure that we could see. Um, substantive changes in the number of people who live with poverty or um, who are unemployed or, you know, who experience violence in their lives. And we've seen all of that exacerbated um, through the COVID pandemic. But what we have seen, I think, is an increasing recognition and awareness of experiences of, of the importance of um, including experiences of women, men, and gender diverse people with disabilities. As well, I think we're seeing an increasing um, response by some governments in Canada um, through legislation. So obviously, you know, Ontario's had the Ontarians with Disabilities Act for more than a decade and a half. Manitoba and Nova Scotia have come on, the federal government come, came on, and you folks in British Columbia have your own Accessibility Act. And um, while they're not perfect, um, I think they show something uh, really, really important about our, our level of awareness and um, structural change happening. And I see it um, in things like accessible documents. Um, I no longer have to explain to people why we need accessible documents. Um, there is, or how to make them accessible, right? Like there's so many more resources and um, procurement, like buying um, goods and services that are are accessible through universal or inclusive design are arguments that I have a much easier time making now. So those are some of the big changes that I've seen. And... You mentioned COVID. Um, in your mind, did that highlight some more issues that needed to be considered? Uh, absolutely. I don't think there was anything new that came out um, in COVID that we hadn't known before about the experiences of exclusion and uh, barriers to access. But what it illustrated was how those get intensified in situations of emergencies and how people um, need to be included in thinking through our, our plans for um, responding to emergencies. And I think the other thing that, that came up was uh, an, um, an understanding of uh, the intersectional discrimination that different groups of people with disabilities experience. So there's increasing awareness of racialized people with disabilities who may be working, for example, in healthcare systems or um, uh, children with disabilities, um, uh, seniors with disabilities who live in long-term care homes, um, um, indigenous people with disabilities and the different access to services that they had if they live in First Nations communities or Inuit communities than those who may live in um, urban settings. So what we saw, and we did a major research project about 
um, uh, policies related uh, to COVID and disability inclusion. And what we found was um, there is a opening right now to respond to some of the systemic inequity. Um, and if we don't take action now, it's not, um, it, it's going to be a long time before we get another sense of, of this opening of awareness. Yeah, I mean, COVID is one thing. Obviously, these are sort of, uh, you know, natural disasters, if you will. The one thing we experienced here in BC and became a very um, important thing for us to sort of notice was we had that heat dome last year, if, if you recall. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and we had over 600 people die as a result. And one thing that we realized is that there needs to be better communication, better understanding uh, between people and, and those with developmental disabilities. Because in one case, I, I, I did talk to this one woman who lost her sister, um, and it was just they didn't know. They didn't know that her room got that hot, They and, and her sister didn't really know how to communicate that. So when it when it comes to some of these things and creating new policies, I guess where does it where does that fall into in terms of helping define human rights and protecting lives from these kind of things? I, I, absolutely, and I think um, that's that example of the heat dome is a horrific but really clear example of um, what happens when you don't imagine people with disabilities in your decision making and planning. Right, so we didn't imagine the sister that you talked about in um, in the discussions of how to ensure that there were, were cool spaces or that there was built-in air conditioning or things like that. And how would we have known? Well, we needed to have her or somebody who could, uh, who was aware of her situation, be at the table in order to um, illustrate um, sort of what she lives with. And um, I know that you've had a commission of inquiry and that um, there have been, there was um, initially a, a person with disabilities on that and um, that, that that voice wasn't listened to, that that perspective wasn't included necessarily. And that's, I, I think, a bit of a challenge um, when, when uh, people with disabilities offer their expertise, they also need to be listened to. Um, so the inclusion needs to be at the table and in the decision making and in the follow up. Yeah. Um, so, Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And no. So I was just going to say I think that's um, it, it's a model for all policy. It is about having people with disabilities or their representatives um, at the table when decisions are being made with the resources, including financial resources. Um, and accessibility uh, supports to support their full participation and making sure that it's not pro forma, that it isn't just, um, you know, uh, uh, um, something that uh, is nice and we can point to the one person who sits on there, that it's it's substantive and that it's listened to and taken seriously and, and part of uh, the decision making. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned uh, something in, in the sort of financial vein. The federal governments, of course, I'm sure you're aware of, tabled the new uh, Canada Disability Income Benefit. Uh, I'm not entirely sure where it's at at this stage. I think it's been through a second reading, but that's that might be about it. What, what sort of impact are you hoping for this new bill, assuming it gets pushed I, through? 
Yeah, and I think that's still up for grabs. Um, I, I think it's really important um, for a portion of people with disabilities. And um, it's important also not to uh, look at it as the be all and end all of disability supports. So it, it targets um, people with disabilities who don't have access to employment income and um, who are lower than retirement age, but older than youth. Um, and uh, so what it could do is make sure that they have a consistent, um, reliable income that um, means that they don't have to go on social assistance. And as we all know, social assistance is where lots of people with disabilities end up because we don't have inclusive workplaces, we don't have appropriate supports, um, so, um, and we don't have good mechanisms uh, to provide income for many people with disabilities. So social assistance ends up being where uh, folks end up, and that is below poverty wages and um, below poverty income. And so um, this, if and I hope we can say when um, it becomes law, will be able to address some of those gaps. And so the way it is right now, you, uh, I get the sense that you feel that, that, that governments on, on any level aren't quite doing enough to support people with disabilities financially? I think that um, disability isn't something that anybody, um, uh, it, it is a bit of a, uh, a lottery. My body works a particular way. And I then, in a society where we don't provide supports related to disabilities, I end up bearing the costs of my differences because the, the, the society was built for people who aren't like me. So an example that I often like to use is uh, infrastructure and lights. Um, as a sighted person, I need lights to work in the dark when the room is too dark. I don't even have to ask for it. I can turn the lights on because somebody imagined me there. They imagined me as a sighted person needing lights to do my work. My blind friends don't need lights to do their work, yet they're paying for the hydro costs to give me lights. Well, why shouldn't we pay as sighted people and um, non-disabled people for the supports that allow all of us to participate in society. And that's where I think governments have a responsibility to take uh, tax dollars to use for the benefit of those who haven't been imagined in our society and who have to pay for the costs of, of the barriers to access that exist as a result. Um. So what, what sort of, sort of backtracking a little bit, what sort of projects are you working on right now? I have many projects. <laughs> I <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, let me talk about two. I um, am leading a, a, a partnership, sort of, uh, grant related to disabilities and livelihoods in Canada. And it's... Um, 
trying to take a notion of livelihoods, which is different than work or employment. It's broader than both of those. And it includes, it, livelihoods are the ways in which we make a living and a life. And so livelihoods can be about how we barter, how we provide care, how we have market gardens, how we do arts and um, use those as sources to support ourselves. And so we're looking at how people with disabilities in Canada, um, in a couple of different areas, uh, help us understand this notion of livelihoods and how, how it helps us understand both participation and inclusion in society. So we're looking uh, around the area of volunteering and people with disabilities. We're looking at arts and people with disabilities. And the one that I'm in particular focused on is around pre-employment supports and young women with disabilities. And, and what does it take um, to address, uh, for example, the childcare needs of young women with disabilities or the educational gaps or um, appropriate supports uh, to ensure uh, better access uh, to income? So that's a project that I'm, I'm pretty excited about. We just got notice that uh, the Disability and Work Conference in November of this year, we'll be presenting a panel on some of our research related to that. And I'm excited about that. That sounds really good. I don't know if uh, you're in Ontario, we're out here, uh, but uh, here at DDA, we've got two social enterprises, one of which is our uh, uh, organization called Jobs West, where we actually, mm -hmm. we work with uh, employers and clients so that people with developmental disabilities can find and keep keep jobs. It's a big part mm -hmm. of what we do, so it's it's super, super important. Um, let's talk a little bit about MAID, uh, the medical assistance okay. in dying. This is, this, is, this is a big topic here in Canada right now. Of course, it's uh, DDA, we don't, haven't really taken a stance on this, uh, but I'm starting to see other um, uh, newsrooms around the world uh, publishing content, saying some pretty nasty things to, about Canada, how we're now practicing eugenics uh, and killing disabled and poor people. Uh, what if are your or your primary concerns when it comes to this kind of a law? Um, boy, I have oh so many concerns. I think that medical assistance in dying, as it's come to be developed through the various amendments and changes and law um, in Canada, uh, is one that privileges white people. Um, often who aren't used to having to be dependent or rely on others uh, to live their lives and don't want to imagine themselves as um, people who are um, uh, dependent. And so they see that as uh, something they'd like to avoid. Well, for lots of people with disabilities, we know what it's like to um, you know, require supports to live our daily lives whether it's somebody to check in on us or somebody to wipe our bum or change our diaper or somebody to uh, change the catheter or give us food or whatever. And so um, uh, many of us don't feel um, as much like we've lost our dignity uh, when we are in those relationships of care and dependency, but see it as uh, sort of an interdependence. Uh, and I think what MAID is doing is 
um, creating space for some people to have a choice. And I'm glad that some people have that choice. But in other cases, um, it's creating a, a, a situation where um, folks who haven't been able to get the supports uh, that they need to live or to live well, um, whether that's because they can't access housing and they have chemical sensitivities or because they've had to live so long in poverty, they're just kind of worn out of, of trying or they haven't been able to get the medical supports they need. Um, and, and somebody offers it to them as an option. Um, and it may be somebody in uh, a relationship of trust or somebody um, like the stories that have come up lately about veterans affairs, raising it as an option. Um, so, so to me, medical assistance uh, in dying in those situations is um, something that is not a choice, but is a forced uh, situation. We are not able in um, to provide the necessities of life. So people think that their only option is uh, to end their lives. Um, I've called this at other times sacrificial citizenship where people don't, with disabilities don't want to be seen as a burden to their families. And they've been told that they're a burden on society or they cost um, uh, a lot to take care of. And so they sacrifice themselves. Well, I don't think that's appropriate. Um, so uh, I, think, I think it was really troubling to have the substantial changes to make discussed in the middle of a pandemic where people with disabilities were the ones bearing the heaviest burden of the pandemic um, barriers. Uh, so I, I think there are lots and lots of problems with this. And, and I think the government, um, the federal government pushing forward on made full steam, but dragging their feet on the disability benefit is uh, uh, not a very good sign, right? Like, they should mm. be pushing forward on the disability benefit and yes, dragging perhaps. their feet perhaps. on medical assistance and dying. Yes, perhaps a little bit backwards. So, uh, I mean, I've been reading some some sad stories similar to what you've just been discussing. So how, through disability rights, do we protect those who may not see another way out of a bad situation, but death probably shouldn't be their option? Um, first, we need to be there for each other. Um, peer support is a really, really important part of living with disabilities. And we all feel stronger when we know we're not alone. And it's hard when you feel like you're just being ground down by your day-to-day -day existence. Uh, so I know behind the scenes of a lot of these public conversations, uh, my colleagues in the disability movement have been advocating and raising funds so that people feel like they have more choice, but that can, I mean, with more and more stories coming out, we can't do that in every case. So I think as advocacy organizations, there's a responsibility uh, to continually um, uh, prod and push and articulate um, the gaps in care, the reasons why this is happening. I think uh, folks like uh, Catherine Frizee and others have just done an exceptional job in having um, uh, Gabriel Peters really exceptional jobs in ha uh, in raising 
the concerns and, and making sure that we understand that uh, racialized and indigenous people with disabilities are those who uh, experience more of the um, more of the push toward medical assistance in dying uh, because they often live with more of the poverty and the barriers to access. So I, I think, you know, listening and supporting and uh, circulating uh, what those folks have been saying is really, really important. And, you know, for those of us who are lucky enough to get invited to uh, speak publicly, um, bring it up at every single time. I mean, when I'm interviewed mm -hmm. by the press, I'll often bring it up uh, because they don't think of me as somebody who is a maid uh, spokesperson. But I think it, it is not letting those stories go untold, like not letting um, governments uh, step away from the responsibility of the situation they've created. So what are some of the biggest challenges you face in trying to elicit change on any particular level of government? Um, governments are very slow moving, frankly, and they are accountable to an electorate um, regularly, like every four years. And there's always the possibility of, of uh, not having the same government or uh, the same government with the same priorities. So for me, um, governments are only a piece of the advocacy toolkit. Um, I keep my relationships with those bureaucrats inside governments uh, close because they're the ones who are more stable. But I, we also reach out to ministers and, you know, um, in um, committees and things like that. Uh, but I think it's also about using social media effectively. It's about um, sharing information. You know, as a researcher, I have access to lots and lots of information Part of what I see my job is, is to make sure that what we learn needs to be um, not just shared in formats that policymakers can understand, but in formats that um, public uh, folks want to know. So having fact sheets or hot topic sheets or um, policy briefs or um, Twitter, um, you know, bite-sized pieces. So really trying to reach out and raise awareness of a lot of these issues. Now, in general, um, how is Canada doing on, in terms of disability rights? Are we on, are we on the right road? I know obviously there's, there's problems in a lot of things we've, we've talked here, but are we, are we on the right path or does something need to be rewritten? I know that in reading some of your uh, bio, you mentioned uh, this, this universal planning rather than, I mean, because from a disabilities point of view, we often look at making something accessible, which, you know, that sounds good, but coming, coming at it from a universal perspective rather than just making something accessible at the moment. So I guess it's a sort of a, a big, big blanket question is, do we need to sort of change our perspective uh, or keep working on changing our perspectives? Like how far have we got to go? Right. So we began this conversation by me saying, yeah, the research is fine, but really this is personal for me. And what I find is change happens when people can see a personal link and they can then imagine when they begin to hear stories of people 
who are real human beings and the implications of those stories. So the change, I think, Canada um, is not dissimilar from many other places around the world. Um, uh, uh, some good, lots of bad. Um, uh, but I have hope because the um, advocacy of disabled people together um, with their families or their representative organizations um, and uh, really pushes when uh, they, um, we are out on the streets and in a playground um, and you see a disabled child on a swing that's been built uh, to be accessible through using inclusive design, um, it changes your notion of who are disabled, uh, who are children, right? Because you now include in your picture this child who may be in a wheelchair um, as part of your neighborhood. And um, I, I love to tell a story of somebody, um, a leader in the disability community, Jim Dirksen, who recently died. Um, Jim lived in my neighborhood in Winnipeg when I lived there. And uh, Jim was a, an amazing character. He was a wheelchair user. He had polio when he was younger. He wore um, very uh, evocative clothes, like you always knew where Jim was. But he made, he just drove around my neighborhood and everybody in the neighborhood knew Jim. And it was no big deal, right? Like by being present in the neighborhood, in a house like all the rest of us, he was our neighbor. And that's, I think, how change happens, is when um, people with disabilities are part of our communities, when we are included, um, without having to make big um, adaptations or whatever, when we use inclusive design in our homes so that people can visit us, um, who may have mobility uh, barriers or, um, you know, when we have scent-free environments so that um, folks with chemical sensitivities can be at discussions and meetings. Those are all ways that we build inclusion and belonging. Um, and that we recognize that um, disability is just part of the range of what human life is about. I think you wrapped that up nicely. I was going to say if you do have anything else to add, but I think that just sort of hits hits it right on the head. It's all part of it. Uh, uh, I, I think so. Yeah, thanks. Just one thing, Dick, your, your book about Canada Disability Rights 2nd Edition, where do people find it? Um, you can find it on Fernwood Publishing's website. You can also find it in, in some bookstores. It's available... Um, uh, it's available as a um, audiobook, as well as a, um, a PDF book and a, um, a hardcover book. So it was my first experience in having an audiobook, which was a lovely thing to have this woman read my text with uh, lots of things. So um, there are a number of ways for folks to do it, but Fernwood Publishing is the best place to look. So I'm sure you can find it on Amazon and all those other places. I believe I did see it there, yes, but Fernwood Publishing yeah. is, is the main one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, um, 
Today we have been listening uh, to a Developmental Disabilities Encouraging Abilities podcast. Our guest today has been Deborah Steenstra, again, author of About Canada Disability Rights, second edition, uh, disability and woman's advocate and professor of political science at the University of, of Guelph. Once again, we thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Evan. It's been a pleasure.